Growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is a story that never, ever, ever grows old. And if it does, then you have totally missed the impact or the the meaning of this story. What does it mean when we say we know someone? For instance, if a person asks you, do you know the actor that played Han Solo in Star Wars? More than likely, you'd respond with something like, oh, yes, I know him. He is Harrison Ford. You know who he is. You would recognize him if he was walking down the street. You know Harrison Ford, but most likely you don't really know Harrison Ford, right? So here's a question to think about. There are people who would say they know Jesus Christ, but in reality, do they really know Jesus Christ? When we sin, we're either saying one of two things. I know better than the almighty creator of the universe as to what is best for me. Or we are saying, and perhaps worse, I don't care about God. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. Today we're jumping into chapter 2 of 1 John in our series entitled Building on the Basics. As we make our way through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we're building on the basic of love and learning what it means to walk in it. John is known as the disciple of love because he has a lot to say about it, both in his gospel account and in these three letters written near the end of John's life. But before John takes us too deeply into the subject of love, he has something to say about our actions as followers of Jesus Christ and how those actions become the evidence that we really do know Jesus Christ. As always, thanks for joining us today. Now, here's Pastor Clay. We know people different levels or different degrees, right? It, it varies and sometimes, you know, very intimately sometimes. Uh, my, uh, I had uh, grandchild duty uh, this Friday afternoon. I had to watch uh, Travis and Lauren's uh, children, Emery and Ellie, for a little while. And um, uh, they were at the house, and it was just me and them two. And we were having a good time. We were doing this stuff, messing around. But I had to go upstairs to my office, and I had to go do something. And they were in the toy room playing. And I said, okay, all right, now you stay in here, and you play, or you watch TV. The TV is on some cartoons. Or you can watch TV. Uh, I, uh, Poppy has to go upstairs and do something, and then I'll, I'll be down in a few minutes. So I was up there about five or six minutes. I'm on the phone talking to somebody, and here comes uh, Ellie. And uh, she's very, you know, can be very gregarious and outgoing and all this stuff. And, and so she wants to know, Poppy, where are your Tic Tacs? Uh, I keep, always keep Tic Tacs colored ones around and stuff for the grandkids. And so she goes over and gets them. And we, I've got like, Cindy bought two new, you know, like multicolor and solid orange, big old honking thing. And she's just like, whoo, yeah, baby, mother load. And uh, so I said, no, nah, I'll get them. And so I'm talking on the phone and I'm getting out, you know, three Tic Tac, three different colors. And I give them to them. And I said, you know, oh, no, go put those back over there. And I'll go back and talking on the phone. Well, of course, she goes straight downstairs with the Tic Tacs. And in a few minutes, Emery yells up, Poppy! Ellie has Tic Tacs all over the place, and she's eating them all. So I have no idea how many she had eaten. I really don't. Um, but I, uh, I had Emery. I said, pick them all up and all stuff. So he picks them up. And they're, so they're downstairs. And I'm still on the phone. I'm still doing stuff. And then in uh, just a few more minutes, maybe 10 minutes, Emery comes up. And he says, Poppy, Ellie got out all of the chocolate, and she made me eat it. And I said, she made you eat it, Emery? Yes, she made me eat it. I said, Emery, she didn't make you eat it. You wanted to eat it. What you should have done was come and told me that Ellie was getting into the chocolate, but you didn't do it until after she had gotten into the chocolate because you wanted to eat the chocolate. And Emery said, well, 
this is the truth. He's five years old. He says, well, I just, I didn't want to make her feel bad if I didn't eat the chocolate <laughs> that she got out. I'm like, and I'm like, yeah, I, I know. I know, Emery. Right? We know. Sometimes we know. Sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we think we know and we don't know. You know? Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. We, uh, we won't get all the way through uh, probably everything that we intended to. Uh, that I originally thought about this morning. We'll see how far we get in it. But uh, this, is, this is such a wonderful passage of Scripture. Uh, all of it is, of course. But First John chapter 2, the idea of walking in love. Uh, some things I want to point out to you. We're going to read this morning uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 14, okay? If you don't, didn't have to bring a copy of God's Word, we have it up on the text, uh, text up on the screen as well, uh, if that's helpful uh, to you. John... Uh, in chapter 2 starts, and he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says... I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a, I'm sorry, what's that next word? Liar. Okay, I just want y'all to say it. Is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected or completed. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light... And yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven you for his namesake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. All right. Let's, uh, let's jump into a few ideas this morning based on that text, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 through 14. First idea I want to uh, open up with this morning is this. We know what we shouldn't do. We know what we shouldn't do. Now, on the surface, if you were here, especially if you were here last week, or if you've read 1 John chapter 1, on the surface, this may uh, sound almost as if it's a contradiction to what John said last week or what we read last week in First John chapter 1. 
Because last week in 1 John chapter 1, John kept talking about the idea that, that, that if anybody says they're not, not a sinner, if anybody says they don't sin, the, the truth is not in them. It's ridiculous. Of, 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 of course they sin. I mentioned last week that uh, John, uh, it, it, apparently, it certainly would appear, that his letter was written to, to uh, take on, to confront uh, some of the, the false doctrines, some of the heretical teachings that were trying to make their way around in the church. And, and some of the other uh, elders of the church and fellow believers had asked John, apparently, to write this letter. And one of those early uh, heresies was the heresy known as perfectionism. It was the belief that you could reach a state of perfection in this life, that you could come to a place where, where sin just no longer bothered you, temptation no longer bothered you, you walked the straight and narrow path all the time, you were perfect, you were literally perfect, you reached absolute perfection. It was a heresy, it's a, it's a false teaching. This side of eternity, you and I, I'm sorry, we simply do not reach a state of perfection. Man, would it be nice if we did, Right? Man, it would be nice for my wife if I got it right all the time. Right? It's wrong. But but then now, in chapter 2, John turns around and says, I'm I'm writing these things, dear children, that you may not sin. Well, well, John, which is it? Are are we supposed to confess that we are sinners and that we live in our flesh and that we do sin? Or are we supposed to not sin? John, which is it? Yes. Yes. It is both. It is both. We are sinners. We are born under the sin curse. We, are, we have our sinful nature. We have an enemy who tempts us. We are sinners. We, we do sin. We are not perfect. There's no question about it. We are not perfect. But we also recognize that, that when we come into a relationship with Christ, that there is a calling to come out of sin, and there is the power available to us to not yield to sin. We may not be perfect, but that's the idea here. So it may sound like a contradiction, but in fact, it actually is not a contradiction. John's saying it's both. Yes, you are a sinner. Yes, you will stumble. But what John is talking about, here we go, what John is talking about in chapter 2 is is an embrace of a life of sin. Do you understand what I'm saying? It is is to say, this is how I want to live my life. This is how I'm going to live my life. I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what God says. I'm not really interested in God's word. Believe me, I used to live my life that way. I'll do my thing when I want to do it and how I want to do it, and that's just the way it's going to be. It's my life. And, that's, and John says, no, you can't, you can't do that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, there was a second uh, heresy that was beginning to arise within the church, and that heresy uh, was, is known as antinomianism. Can you all say that? Say antinomianism. Antinomianism. Uh, it comes from uh, the Greek word for law, namas, with a uh, negative prefix attached to it. So uh, antinomianism is against law. It, it, is a, it, is, it is to say we're against, uh, basically it is to say we're against rules and regulations. We're against, uh, uh, you know, right or wrong, that we're, we're, we're antinomian. Here was the thought. Here was the thought with the antinomianness. Hey, we're saved by grace, right? Y'all can say amen to that, right? We're saved by grace. It's all about God's grace. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by keeping the law. And so, here was the, what seemed to, the, to them to be the rational progression. Since the law has nothing to do with our salvation, since we're saved completely by grace and not what we do or don't do, then we can do whatever we want. 
We can do as much as we want. We can do all we want. And it doesn't matter because, here it is, it sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? Because the grace of God covers all of it. Amen. Amen. The grace of God covers all my, my sins. And so, there were antinomians who were actually teaching that not only did it not matter what you did, but they were teaching that you actually should embrace sin all the more. That you should indulge in sin because, now listen to the rationale, because... If you sin, the bigger you sin, the bigger God's grace is displayed. See? See how that works? See? Just, hey man, we really encourage you. Go out and sin a bunch and God's grace is just on display because God's grace covers all our sins, right? Right? And it does. So that was the idea behind it. Hey, no surprise here. The antinomianism movement was much more successful than the perfectionism movement. Right? You can understand... You can understand how that would work. Hey, come to our church. We, we let you do anything you want to. Matter of fact, we encourage you to do anything you want to do because you'll be displaying the grace of God to all those people around you. They probably had to hire off-duty police officers on the weekend to, to, to help manage the, the, the traffic that was coming into their parking lot on Sundays. And then there's the little perfectionists. They're like, no, we, we do everything right. <laughs> It's, it's antinomianism. And, 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 John, and John says, hey, folks, no, it's a lie. Listen, yes, we're saved by grace. Yes, it's not by what we do or don't do. Yes, we're not saved by works or, or the law. The law had its purpose. God gave the law for reasons, but, but that's not what saves us. Absolutely, all of that is true, but it's a lie to think that that means that grace becomes, as I said last week, it, be, it becomes a... a, a a pass to just sin and do whatever you want to do. To embrace sin and to do whatever the antinomian said. Or By the way, antinomian, antinomianism. Am I talking fast? Antinomianism is alive and well in the world today, ladies and gentlemen. It may sound a little different, but I'm telling you, it's just, it may sound something like this. Well, God is love. God, God loves everybody. God is love. So, so you know, I, I don't have to follow a set of rules and regulations. I just, God just loves me the way I am. It's the same thing, ladies and gentlemen. It's the same idea. And, 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 and John says, no, no. And he uses this term as term endearment. He calls them children there in, uh, in that, that first part, I guess, of verse 1. It's my little children. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Don't do it. Cindy and I, um, a couple weeks ago now, just got back from a vacation. And uh, we went to California. Never been to California. It's a big thing. And uh, we, uh, we went with Nate and Kimberly Jones. They invited us. Asked us to go. Actually, got a couple of years ago, asked us to start saving for this trip because it was kind of a milestone birthday for both of them. And so they wanted to make this trip. And they asked us, they were very gracious enough to ask us if we would consider uh, going with them. By the way, I just say this. You know, I hope you all are okay with it. It doesn't make us a clique. It makes us friends. It doesn't make us friends. I'll go on vacation with you if you want me to. If you ask me, especially if you pay Okay, thank you, brother. A, that's a great vacation spot up there, I hear. Uh, you understand? So, so they asked us to go. So we went. We went to San Francisco and went to Monterey. And it was, you know, it was wonderful. It was fantastic. But this place where we stayed, this hotel where we stayed in San Francisco, right around the corner uh, was a, a, a drugstore. Was it Walgreens? Well, it was Walgreens, a drugstore. And we had to go there several times. First, we had to go buy a suitcase because on the morning we left, uh, our suitcase exploded. 
and uh, the zipper wouldn't work any longer, and so we had to have something to uh, get everything back. Anyway, so, and we, we went and bought bottles of water while we were there, because we just, I don't know, call us crazy. We weren't going to pay $8 for a bottle of water in the hotel. It just, just didn't seem like that was rational. Uh, so we had to buy bottles of water, had to buy some things for my feet, because my feet bothered me just a little bit. And uh, so we made several trips. I got, you got the picture of several trips into Walgreens. Every time we went in, every time we came out, there was a guy standing right in front of the Walgreens, ironically enough, right in front of a drugstore, holding up a sign saying, let's not pretend it's for weed. You understand? You understand? In other words, he's, he's, he's not saying, um, and it's not a derision of, of people that have genuine needs. I'm just saying, and it wasn't a sign that said, you know, uh, lost job, will work for food. He just said, let's not pretend it's for weed. Now you get it? It's, it's, it's just this idea that it's just, whatever, you know, just, just embrace it. It's just what, it's just the way it is. It's the world. It's, it's who we are. We've got a fleshly nature. Let's just embrace it. And John is battling this. He's saying, no, 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 no. You're called out of that. You, that's not who you are anymore. Look at this. Uh, well, let me first let me remind you this. John chapter 4. There's a story of uh, Jesus uh, meeting this woman at the well, right? Samaritan woman, if you're familiar with the story. And he gets in this dialogue with her. And they're talking about water and living water. And it, it turns from, a, from you know, it's masterful how Jesus takes this natural scene and turns it in a spiritual direction. And, uh, and, you know, you can tell the woman's under conviction. She kind of tries to change the subject. And she says, uh, well, our fathers uh, worshiped God over uh, on this uh, mountain. But you Jews say it's supposed to be in here. And, what do you, and Jesus said, and Jesus said, he said, go call your husband. And she just, you know, you can just tell in the, te- in the script, in the text, she's just under conviction. And she says... I, I don't have a husband. And Jesus, you know, listen, listen to what he's saying. Now, Jesus is all about love and everything, right? But you know what he says? He says, you're darn right. Well, he probably didn't say darn. But you're, you're right. You don't have a, a husband. As a matter of fact, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're shacked up with right now is not your husband. And I love it. It says she, she takes off to town, and, the, and, and uh, specifically, the text specifically says in John chapter 4 that she went and told all the men. She said, I met a man that, that told me everything that I'd done. And the next thing you know, all the men are running back out to see who this is. Why? Because probably half of them have slept with her. And that's just, and, oh, let's find out who this is. But God used it in a powerful way, and people came into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But the point is, is that Jesus was saying, no. I'm going to confront your sin. I'm not going to just excuse it away. You need to know that you're called out of sin. John chapter 5 uh, says this. Afterward, uh, Jesus found him in the temple. This guy he had healed at the, at the pool of Bethesda. Uh, he, he, he found him. He says, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. It doesn't necessarily mean that what he was crippled because of sin. There's a long backstory there. But the point is, Jesus says, don't sin anymore. Don't, don't live your life of sin, right? Look at this one, John chapter uh, 8, I think it is, yeah. Uh, she said, this is the woman caught in adultery, right? Caught in the act, dragged her out of bed. By the way, ladies, did you notice? Where's the guy? Right? Where's the guy? You understand, under the law, he was just as guilty as she was. But they didn't bring him. Men. They dragged the woman out, right? And throw her in front of Jesus, says, she's, she's, we caught her in the act of adultery. Law says stoner. What do you say? And of course, Jesus, you know, has this famous scene. He writes in this, draws in the sand. And, and then he says, he was out sin, cast the first stone. And they all start bump, 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 dropping their stones because they're under conviction as well. And Jesus turns to the woman. He says, he says woman, where, where, are the, where, where are those that, that condemn you? 
And she says, no one, there's, there's no one, Lord. And Jesus said, watch this, I do not condemn you either. I'm not going to stone you. Go from now on. Sin no more. Come out of this. You're different now, having met me. Uh, Romans chapter 6 Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Oh, well, that's, 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 just, that's just the way I am. Listen, can I, can I remind you all of this? The whole point in coming to relationship with Jesus Christ is that he's trying to change us from who we are into, into who he wants us to be, into his image. That would have been a good place to say amen. I'm, I'm just saying. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. For sin shall not master over you. For you're not under law, but under grace. You see what he's saying? It's exactly the opposite of the antinomians. No, grace is not a license to sin. Grace gives you the power to not give in to sin. Can actually give you. We know what we shouldn't do. It's not rocket science. It's not complicated. This is not who you are anymore. Oh, listen. I know I, I, know I sin. But, but man, I used to be a good for nothing low down Nothing. Sinner. You know what I'm saying? That's not who you are anymore, John says. We know what we shouldn't do. Here's the second idea uh, this morning. Not only do we know what we shouldn't do. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, let me bring that up, Travis. I, I, I need to co- cover that. You're right. Thank you. Um, uh, let's, let's talk about, before I move on, real quick, God's motivation for declaring something sinful. I think this is important. Because I think there are people that, that sometimes just think that God had, God just, just decided you know, what was right or what was wrong. or He just... I've said this for years. Some of you heard me say this. God is not the cosmic killjoy of the universe looking to ruin everybody's party. God is not a prude. God is not a stick in the mud that doesn't have any fun and doesn't want anybody else to have any fun either. No, there's motivation behind God's decision to to determine what is right and what is wrong, what is sinful and what is not sinful. And the first motivation is simply this. Sin is destructive to us. It hurts you. There's a consequence. There's a, there's a penalty. Now listen, sin can have a consequence for us physically. It can have a consequence for us emotionally. It can have a consequence for us psychologically. And it always has a consequence for us spiritually. There's always a cost to sin. And in the moment, we just forget about it or we ignore it or we, or we let it. There's a cost. Take, for instance, I know we were talking the whole HB2 and transgender thing. So let's just, just take, for instance, sexual sin. Sin outside of the boundaries that God designed it for. God says, have a sexual relationship with your husband if you're a wife and with your wife if you're a husband and only with them and only when, when you're married. That's how God designed it. I'm not, that's how God designed it. Because God knows that sin is destructive, that there are consequences, there are penalties, there there are things that can hurt you as a result of sin. For instance, physically speaking, sin practiced outside of the confines that God designed it can be harmful. Sexually transmitted diseases uh, can can have repercussions for years, sometimes resulting in infertility, sometimes resulting in death. There's the whole thing of, of unwanted pregnancies. It, it, it can be, listen, the world wants to treat sex like it's a recreational sport. And it's not. Sex is beautiful and wonderful and pleasurable. But when it is practiced outside the confines in which God designed it, it is harmful. 
It, it can be harmful. And so God says, I love you, so here's, here's where I'm putting this, this gift of sex that I gave you. Here's where I put it. Here's where you should, should practice it. There, there can be emotional, psychological scars, wounds, baggage from, from sexual mistakes. I'm not going to ask anybody to lift your hands. I, w- I would never do this, but if I were to go around the room and, and, to, and to say, how many of you would, sh- would like to share some emotional scar or hurt or pain or baggage that you have as a result of a, a, a decision that you made to have a sexual relationship with somebody uh, before you're married or that wasn't your spouse or whatever the case. Uh, I, listen, well, I'd never do that, but I promise you, I promise you, we'd have no problem filling up the hour with people sharing their hurts, their scars, their baggage as a result of that. Now listen, Jesus Christ came to set us free from all of that, and he does. But when he says, don't do this, this is wrong, this is harmful, he's doing it because he loves you and because this behavior is, is, is hurtful, it's destructive to you. That's at least part of the reason why God declares something is right or something is wrong. And it doesn't matter whether the culture agrees, doesn't agree, it, it, it just is what it is because God decides those things, and God knows what is best for us, God knows how he created us, and God knows what is harmful to us. The second motivation for God is that sin is dishonoring to God. Yeah, it's destructive to us, but it's also dishonoring to God. Because listen, when we sin, and, and remember, again, what we're talking about here is this, this, this embrace of, of sin and deciding this. I'm gonna, when, we, when we sin, we're either saying one of two things. Either we're saying, well, I I know better than the almighty creator of the universe as to what is best for me. So I'll make that decision. I know better than God. Or we are saying, perhaps worse, I don't care about God. I don't care what he thinks. I don't care what he says. It's my life. I can live it the way I want. If I want to enjoy this or do that or step over here or do it, it's my life. I can live it the way I want. It's my choices uh, to make. I'm telling you, it's it's incredibly dishonoring to God, and it leaves you at a place where you are broken and damaged and alienated from a relationship with God, this, the intimacy with God and, and the ability to, to have God's power in your life. So God's motivation for declaring something sinful is really for our good. God knows, and we know what we shouldn't do. So here's a second idea real quickly. We know what God did do. That last part of verse 1 and verse 2, it says, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. I don't care how many times you read it. I don't care how many times you hear it, how many times I stand up here and say it, or somebody else says it. This is a story that never, ever, ever grows old. And if it does, then you have totally missed the impact or the the meaning of this story. If it's something, say, yeah, yeah, heard that before. Two particular words that I want to, that you could probably guess that I want to point out to you. The first is, is advocate. In, in the original language that it was written in, in the Greek, it is parakleton. Uh, parallel lines are two lines laid side by side. It comes from the same root word. A parakleton is a person who comes alongside of you, that, that comes alongside of you and, and is there for you and, and ser- acts as your advocate, the very, your very advocate. And 
used in a legal sense, which John seems to be saying here, it carries the idea of this person interceding on your behalf. But it's more, listen to me, it's more than just the idea of a professional attorney. It's more like the picture of a friend who's there for you when you're hurting, when you've messed up, when, when you're going through some struggle. This, this, this paracleton comes alongside of you and is there for you. Now listen, I mentioned this last week. It is, it is an amazing thought that God would call me his friend. Right? We talked about that last week. What an amazing thought. But then when you add to that, that he not only is my friend, but he's a friend who comes alongside of me and is there for me and, and, and represents me and intercedes for me. It's an astounding thing. But wait, but wait, but wait. He steps out from standing beside me and he steps in front of me and becomes my propitiation. Oh, that's an old word, isn't it? I don't even know what it means. The Greek word is halasmas. He becomes my halasmas. According to the complete biblical library in, in, uh, in ancient Greek, the halasmas was regarded as nullifying, watch this, was regarded as nullifying the action which caused the rift between the deity and the individual. In the New Testament, halasmas is only used twice, both times by John, both times here in 1 John. And John is saying that Jesus Christ came, offered his sacrifice, offered his blood, offered to be our halasmas to mend the rift that came as a result of my sin that separated me from holy God. Jesus became my halasmas. He became the propitiation, the payment for the sin that I committed. He took the stripes that I deserved. He died the death that I deserved so that you and I could receive what we didn't deserve, eternal life. We know what he did do. And can I say this? That ought to at least be part of the motivation for why I want to to live in a way that honors God. I know I can't earn his, his approval. I, I, I can't even try. I shouldn't even try. I know I can't earn his love. He simply extends it to me and he says, you're my child and I care about you. So I care enough to say this is right, this is wrong, do this, don't do that. But even though you ignore me, even though you sin, I will step out from your side and I will step in front of you and be the very sacrifice for your sins. I'll take on me, what should have been given to you. We know what God did do. Now, I'm just going to close this out. I'm going to give you one more. I'm not going to go. I'm just going to give you the heading, and we'll pick it up next week. We'll look at it. But, he said, but it's just this. We also know, we know what we will do if we really know what God did do. And you can go back and read those verses 3 through 14, and you can see where that's going and all that stuff. We're going to talk about it uh, next week. But ladies and gentlemen, we know what we shouldn't do. We, we stumble, we fall. What John's talking about is a person that in, indulges and says, I don't care, I'm going to live my life, I'm going to do my thing, I, I'm going to do it. We know what we shouldn't do. We know what God did do so that we wouldn't have to get what we deserve. We know what God did do so that we could have grace to have power over sin so that sin wouldn't have to reign in our mortal bodies. And to that I say, as I often say, hallelujah, what a Savior. 
Being followers of Jesus Christ doesn't mean we're perfect, but certainly there should be a change in us when we come to Christ. As Pastor Clay explained today, walking as Jesus walked simply means living life the way Jesus would live, making the moral choices he would make, extending love the way he would extend it, and ministering to others without regard for himself. Those were certainly characteristics of Jesus' life when he was on earth. As his followers, we should exhibit the same characteristics. If we don't do it to gain God's approval, we do it because we've already been approved by God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Our life is changed as a result of knowing him. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. Many people at some point in their life feel disconnected with the type of life and faith they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting. If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I Get It from Clay Stevens? They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it. And join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of cross-culture worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. Our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where they will find what they're searching for. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. A new church for people like you. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.